turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. When Melanie and I were, when we were getting married, it was, we hadn't a lot of experience with weddings, really. I think when you grow up in the church, you have all these experiences with weddings that, that if you're not in the church, you really don't have, unless you've got lots of older siblings and you see it over and over again, which wasn't the case for either of us. And so we didn't have a lot of experience, and when we were getting married, it was, it was, like bare minimum, uh, we didn't have much. <laughs> weren't weren't uh, thinking there would be much, and we were scraping by, just trying to survive. Um, getting married just immediately following Melanie's graduation, uh, so uh, it was interesting then to see at the time when Melanie was just just before she graduated, she was in London. And where she was, the hospital that she was sent to in London uh, was in the south. So we have a church in London, but it's right up in the north east of the city. Uh, it was too far away for her to go to. Uh, going right across the city of London to get there was uh, too much. So in the south part, there is Spurgeon's old church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, with the ministry of Dr. Peter Masters. So that's where she landed. And it was a good, strong church for her to be a part of during those seven or eight months or so. But that's what what they would do, which was new to us, was uh, well have the whole church for their their wedding. Now it's maybe not always something that people are interested in, but it was something they did. They had a basement and just invite the entire church along. Um, So nice, nice thing to do. Join with the Lord's people in that time and share in a special moment in your own history, but uh, various ways to get married. Of course, sometimes it's tempting just to run away and get away from all the aspects of that too and just have a very simple uh, wedding as well. We understand the pressures of even getting married these days, but uh, those of you who are in that process, don't lose the joy of it. I uh, I know Anthony's in the back, but um, it should be a joyful experience and look forward to, and sometimes all the stuff that goes with it can take away the joy. Don't let that happen. Luke 18, Luke chapter 18 is where we are this evening as we continue on in the Gospel of Luke. And we've gotten as far as verse 8, so I'm going to commence reading at verse 9 and read through verse 14, just looking at this parable that our Lord gave very, very well known. And Yet, uh, I think, much for us to learn. Luke 18, verse 9, let's hear the word of the Lord. And he spake this parable unto certain, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Amen. May the Lord write his word on your heart and on mine this evening. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Lord, we ask that we would not miss the message of your word. We pray that you will give us eyes to see and hearts to respond and feet and hands that are willing to obey. We're thankful for the plainness of our Lord Jesus and the directness that he exhibits in his ministry. And we pray that we would be the better for having heard what he has said We're thankful for the Spirit of God that has given us the record. And Lord, we pray that our lives would be helped and strengthened by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, taking the Word and applying it and sanctifying us through Thy truth. Oh, Lord, as a people, we're so weak and we're so prone to sin, but our only claim, our only argument before the living God is Jesus Christ. May we ever run there and keep on running there. Hear and answer prayer and give grace to others to run into the arms of Christ tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one truth that you shouldn't miss when reading the very first book of the Bible as well as any other book of the Bible is the graciousness of God. How gracious God is right from the moment you open your Bible. You see this in various ways. I've dealt with it at various times where you see man being told that the day he will eat of the forbidden fruit, he will die. And yet instead of dying, God pursues him, comes after him. Adam, where art thou? And comes with a message of grace and mercy. The idea that Jews could have a right to pride, looking back on their heritage, flies in the face of a proper and clear even an obvious reading of the book of Genesis and again the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. To think that they can look back and see how God works through history and then eventually of course calls Abraham and the patriarchs and and you have of course Jacob and the tribes stemming from him and they can look back and say well I'm from this tribe and I'm from the other tribe and to elevate that as if it's some kind of greatness because of who they're fathers were and what they accomplished, again, misses the point of the record. You read through Genesis and you think, for example, like Jacob, I mean, it's not exactly someone elevated in order for us to look and say, what a mighty man Jacob was. Quite the contrary. We are to look at him and say, this is, (laughs) who would like this man? Really, who would like him? And yet God in his mercy intervenes in his life. God continually shepherds him, and when he is going astray or there's danger ahead for him, God is intervening, preserving, keeping, and being gracious to a man that you might look at at various times in his life and say, there's no way, there's no way that he deserves any of that. Of course, that's the point. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. It's all gracious. God graciously intervenes in his life, and you're meant to see these details and be humbled. And so the Jewish nation should read that here. We, our God is the God of Jacob. What does that say? Well, we're like Jacob, sinners, and God is gracious, and he intervenes, and he shows mercy and grace to people that are just like Jacob. It is not for us to be puffed up 
It's not for us to exalt ourselves, to use the language of verse 14 of this passage, everyone that exalteth himself, such will be abased. The one that humbles himself shall be exalted. God receives the humble. And oh, if there's a passage that we should never let be far from our minds, it is, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. You want the aid of God? Do you want God's help and favor day by day? Do you want to know that He is holding you and helping you and guiding you and leading you, strengthening you, preserving you? Be humble. Enter into every day and say, I can't do it. I'm unable. I don't have the power. I don't have the intellect. I don't have the insight. I don't have the ability. I can't do it. Now, there are a lot of things that you can say you can do, but when it comes to living for the glory of God, you cannot do it. Humble yourself, and God will help you. So, as we look at this parable, and I, you know, you read it, and I think, you're all so familiar with this, maybe you'll just switch off. It's kind of like the announcements, you know, like you've heard the announcements, and there's a we come to the announcement, I think, at least some people, they just switch off. This is, this is where I give my brain a rest, because pretty much everything is going to be said, I've heard already, so it's kind of irrelevant to me, because there are times when people say, you know, I didn't know that was on, as it's announced every time it's on. Every week or every month, it is announced from the pulpit, <laughs> your, your brain is disengaged, You're clearly not hearing. Well, I hope coming to a familiar portion like this, You will not disengage your brain. Because in these verses, we have some of the most challenging, humbling verses of all of Scripture. And certainly our Lord would not want us, through familiarity, to overlook them and think we know everything we need to know. So, I'm asking the question tonight, are you the Pharisee or the publican? Are you the Pharisee? Or the publican. Because you're one or the other. You're one or the other. You can't escape it. You can't say I'm some different person that Jesus didn't portray in this parable. No. You're either the Pharisee or you're the publican. So as we look at these verses... I want us to see, first of all, the two sins. It's a very simple outline. The two sins, the two men, the two prayers, and the two outcomes. So we begin with the two sins uh, that you find in verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. I agree with John Calvin when he says on this passage, there are two faults at which Christ glances and which he intended to condemn, wicked confidence in ourselves and the pride of despising brethren, the one of which springs out of the other. It is impossible that he who deceives himself with vain confidence should not lift himself up above his brethren. In other words, if a man comes to the conclusion that he can trust in himself, self, it is inevitable that he is going to lift himself up above other men. For if a man can walk around like a proud cockerel or peacock in the presence of God, how much more self-confidence does he have over other men? It's inevitable. 
So the two sins, trusting in themselves. That's the first thing. Trusting in themselves, Jesus says. This is what he's trying to deal with, or he is dealing with, I should say. And so he is looking around. He's not preaching to a crowd in which this is irrelevant. He has before him people that ought to take notice of this message. People which trust in themselves. And you might look at that and say, well, can anyone really trust in themselves? I mean, is there, is there someone so foolish? Maybe it's just speaking about the Pharisees. They're the only ones that would ever trust in themselves. And yet what I was struck by reading this was that he doesn't actually say that this is addressed to the Pharisees. There are other parables that are addressed to the Pharisees. And we're told specifically, not that long ago we looked at one, in which again it is specifically told to us that he speaks this to the Pharisees. That's who he has in mind. Now, of course, one of the characters in this passage is a Pharisee. So again, you think he's addressing the Pharisees. Well, that certainly would be true. Pharisees definitely would be in that crowd of those being addressed. But that's not how the Spirit of God records it, not how Luke words it. He spake this parable not unto Pharisees, but certain which trusted in themselves. Now, sometimes when we paint with broad brushes, it allows us to escape things that we shouldn't escape. So we'll say, well, this was spoken to the Pharisees. Therefore, if I can just prove that I'm not a Pharisee, it doesn't apply to me. Well, the language is given in such a way where you can say I'm not a Pharisee and still you have to ask yourself the question, do I trust in myself? I wonder, is there anyone here that our Lord would look at, give a, a loving glance towards, and speak these words. And again, they're not rare. They're not, they're not, these, these aren't unusual people, those that trust in themselves. Uh, when we gather as elders in our monthly, regular monthly meeting for whatever, I don't know how probably two years or so, I don't know. We've been going through the book of Proverbs. I read, you know, either it's been a chapter or half a chapter every time we come, just going through the book of Proverbs because, you know, <laughs> it's not like you're, you have wisdom. There, you have all you need, that's why you're an elder. Well, not even those who are elders still need that reminder of the various aspects of wisdom. So we read it. And in our last meeting on Tuesday past, we were reading in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 20 in the opening uh, half of that chapter. And verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. Most men. In other words, those that Jesus has in mind are most men. Most men. They proclaim their own goodness. Or they trust in themselves. So this isn't some anomaly. These aren't rare people. We, we, we are those who, who, who are, we are, we are inclined to be like those Jesus addresses here. We forget the language of James 3 verse 2 that in many things we offend all. Right? That's, that's all of us. We, 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 we 
Forget the language of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We, we imagine ourselves to be better than that. And there are various ways of looking at ourselves. And we're going to see how the Pharisee looked at himself and how he was able to come to the conclusion that he could trust in himself. But whether we say the same words, whether we act like the Pharisee, this is often what is going on in our hearts, that we are those that kind of trust in ourselves. We wouldn't say it. We're not saying it. It's not like the Pharisee would say that his hope of salvation is entirely upon himself. He knows the Word of God. He knows Jonah, chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord. He knows the prophecy of the Messiah. That he is Jehovah said, can you? The Lord our righteousness. J.C. Ryle says in this passage, the true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. The true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. And that's what we will see here. This man doesn't know himself. He doesn't know himself. He thinks he does, but he doesn't. And so the question you can ask yourself is, do I understand the language of Isaiah when this man, who is a godly man, God-fearing man, declares before God, I am a man of unclean lips? Do you see how you fit the same portrait? That you're no different. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man who, in, in so many ways I offend. I don't do good. I'm not without sin. And I have this desire at times to proclaim my own goodness and make myself out to be better than I am. And instead, what the Scripture depicts us, and we talked about this recently, about the leper, and how the leper, one of the things that the leper has to do is he has to put his hand over his mouth and cry publicly, unclean, unclean. He owns his uncleanness. He publicly declares it. He's not just conscious of it. He's not simply aware of it, but he publicly professes it. I am unclean. And every single person must come to that same place where your conviction about yourself, your thoughts about yourself are at the bedrock. I am unclean. If you don't get there, you're not going to move forward. You're not going to have God's help. He will let you go on on your own. So, that's the first sin. He trusts in himself. That's what Jesus is addressing here. Those who trust in themselves. That's one sin. And the other, of course, is despising towards others. Showing contempt towards others. And despised others. The end of verse 9. Now, this, this breaks down very simply. I was reading this and reading over it. Sometimes it's amazing the things when you... When you sit down, you start studying it, and you're, you have to preach it, you start thinking about it. just 
little nuggets start to flow to you at times, at least sometimes. You know, I'm looking at this in a way I've never seen it before. Essentially, what you have is, in the two sins, the two tables of the law are being broken. One, he trusts in himself. That's rebellion against God. That's a breaking of the first table. That tells that his view of God is being reflected by his trust in himself. He finds himself in himself salvation. He doesn't see the need to turn on to God, to rest in God, to agree with God concerning what God says about him. This is a breaking of the first table of the law. But then he breaks the second table of the law. Those that relate to our neighbor. When he despises others. How he looks down and shows contempt towards others. Of course, if you're going to break the first table of the law, inevitably you're going to break the second. But it just was interesting to me. I just saw that. That's, what, that's how Jesus divides up those that he's addressing here. Breaks the first table, breaks the second table. Now, you don't get away with... Avoiding this. And that's, of course, the point. Everyone here can learn from what the Lord says. So you have the two sins. But you've also, secondly, the two men. The two men, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. So you have a Pharisee and a publican. A Pharisee, someone who is part of this Jewish sect that was really largely the conservative group of the Jewish religion, upholding the Jewish religion. They, they believed that the Bible was God's word. They, they upheld the word of God. They, they were very stringent about various aspects, about what is expected of those who take the name of God. But even among them, they were, there was division. You had various sort of schools within the Pharisees, some more strict, some, some less strict. And so you have, I think here, the Lord, without saying it, this, this Pharisee here is, is of the, the Shammai school because the, they were known uh, to, to have no time for men who were Jewish who became tax collectors for the Roman government. And so the Hillel people, they would have a little more grace toward people like that. The, the Shammai school would like, no, no, no time for them at all. And so the Pharisee here that is depicted in this passage is of the strict sector, the strict school of the Pharisees. He has no time for someone like this publican at all. You can see no good in him. No matter how he tries, the man might try to frame it. Of course, it was an awful thing. The, 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 what the Jews, how they saw and experienced the, the tax collectors, often the tax collectors were abusive. And they, they, they made their wealth through um, commissions of sorts and extorting from people more than they should. And they, they, this went on, of course. And so you have, in one sense, you have the sense of you're a betrayer of your nation, right? I mean, someone's going to be coming looking for taxes. And it's not like they're going to eliminate that. The Romans are going to look for their taxes, but... No Jew, with any conscience, at least that's how it's viewed, would ever work for the Roman government in this way and do this to their fellow Jewish brothers. 
So the tax collector was despised, viewed as a traitor. So what do we know about them from this parable? Well, they both went up into the temple. So they're going to the public house of God. They go to the temple. You would expect the Pharisee to be there, right? I expect that's the kind of person that you'll see at the temple. You might not expect the the publican to be there, but he's there. They both go there. And they're there for a specific purpose. They're there for prayer. They're going for prayer. And of course, the the temple was was used in this way. It was seen as a a public place where people could come and pray. You think of Anna constantly was going to pray and seek God. This is what they did. And there were assigned times where they would have public prayer. There were other seasons which people would just come in and out and pray. I think there's a lot lost in our day. that The idea of corporate prayer is definitely low, and I don't want to hammer that because we deal with it on various occasions. But just reading this again, you see that it was normal for Jewish life to revolve around the place of worship, and part of their interaction with the place of worship was to go to pray. Just go to pray. Go to seek the face of God. They go there. And they both stand for prayer. There's another detail that's similar in relation to both of them. This was seen as the honorable thing to do. You could talk about posture and posture and prayer. Sometimes you have men kneeling. Sometimes you have them prostrate. And, but it was just an interesting note that the Pharisee stood and the publican standing afar off. They're both standing for prayer. So these are the two men. And of course one is, is looking at the other as if he is better than him. We're going to see that in just a moment. But what was curious to me is in thinking about how the, the Pharisee looks at the publican as a betrayer of the nation, right? That's how he sees them. You're a betrayer of the nation. When the truth says both of them were betrayers of the nation. That's what the Pharisee couldn't see about himself. He was betraying his own nation. Now you say, how? Well, because here is a man who takes the name of God, is meant to represent the true and living God, this nation that is in covenant with God, and he, he is saying that as, as a public figure and as a leader, he, he, is, he, is, he is set aside for this purpose, but he, he is betraying God. He's betraying his nation by his betrayal of God and his gospel. He misrepresents God. He misrepresents the message of salvation. He misrepresents so much of what God had communicated to Israel. And so I say, as I was reading over this, I'm thinking, I mean, really, he's just as much a betrayer of Israel as the publican. And thirdly, not only the two sins, the two men, we have the two prayers. Two prayers. So you have, first of all, the Pharisee's prayer given to us. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. So, as you look at his prayer, first he prays to himself. He prays to himself. And it seemed to me that he stands in a prominent place because there's a contrast here. The publican, 
he stands afar off, it would seem to intimate, maybe can't be dogmatic, but it seem to intimate that the Pharisee doesn't stand afar off. He's, he's in the center, he's maybe up front, he's perhaps in the most prominent place, believing he has a right to be there. Now, it is one thing to pray, thank you, Lord, I am not the sinner I used to be. That's a perfectly agreeable prayer. Thank you, Lord, that I am not the sinner I used to be. But such a prayer focuses upon God's work in your life. You're not making comparison with what may or may not be happening in the life of another. And so instead this man prays, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like this sinner. I'm not like these kind of people. Now this wasn't unusual for Pharisees. This is the thing. Historical record shows that they would pray in such ways. They would have prayers that would say, for example, Thank you, Lord, I'm not a Gentile. Or, thank you, Lord, I'm not a slave. Or, thank you, Lord, in some, in some records, thank you, Lord, where men would pray, I'm not a woman. And this is, this is how they would, they would view it. They, 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 gratitude to God for some supposed elevated position that they believe themselves to possess. So, it is rightly recorded that he prays thus with himself. He prays thus with himself. This is not a prayer that can be directed to God. He thinks he's directing it to God, but he's not. He's in conversation with himself. Oh, how, how, how comfortable he is talking to himself in this way. You know, you, you read over those words. I just want to pause, just thinking about this, even as I was making my way in this evening. I thank thee that I am not as other men. We, we pray that way. We do. Maybe not in those precise words, but it, there is a spirit of that that is very easily drawn out of us or established within us. I mean, how, however way you want to dice it or categorize it, there are all sorts of way in, ways in which we pray like this. Thank you, Lord, that I am, maybe you might look at it in terms of your denomination, or your theological persuasion, or nationality, or whatever it might be. I want you to think about, if you, if you take nothing else away, I want you to think about the ways in which you so easily slip in to language like this. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like some other group, or some other individual, or some other whatever. Now, I was thinking about it even in terms of what happens to people. I think this was the most humbling thing that struck me. When you see someone go through hardship... Whatever it might be, sickness, divorce, wayward children, loss of employment, combination. And sometimes there arises from you a little prayer Thank you, Lord, 
I'm not going through that. Have you ever, have you ever felt yourself going into that? Thank you, Lord, I'm not going through that. When I, I, something struck me thinking about that that I, I don't know if I'd ever thought about before. And it's this. And this is specific towards other believers that are going through whatever the trial may be. And you're looking at it and you're saying, thank you, Lord, I'm not in their shoes or I'm not going through what they're going through, whatever it is. And in some ways it may be empathetic, like it's like in some way, or even sympathetic, whatever. You're, you're looking at it in a way and there's just this kind of silent gratitude that I'm not having to face that, or isn't that a terrible thing that's going on in their life, or whatever it might be. And there arises then this kind of a prayer, thank you Lord, I'm not there. Now just stop for a minute and ask yourself the question, who governs their life and circumstances. Talking about believers here. Who governs? Is it not your God? Their God? So when you step back, put it it this way. Let me illustrate it this way. Say you're, you have a friend that is roughly your age. You're, you're in your teens or going into college or something, choosing a college. And your parents are allowing you, allowing you to choose whatever college you want to go to, whereas your best friend is being forced to go to a particular type of college or wherever it might be. And you look at them because your friend, their, their, your parent, their, their parents are kind of stipulating this is the school we want you to go to. And you look at them and say, I am so thankful I am not like them that I get to choose what school I go to and they're being forced into the school that their parents have chosen. Now, I'm not dealing with the fact whether or not parents can get those choices right or wrong. I want you to see that in terms of God as the Father choosing the path of each of his people. And you're like the sport teenager looking on at your friend and saying, I'm glad my father's not like that. If that, that humbled me. So that little voice that arises, thank you Lord, I'm not going, I'm not in their shoes. What am I saying? What am I, what am I implying? God's being cruel to them? God's getting it wrong for them? God is somehow misleading them. God's, God's mistaken in his choice for them. Be careful with the framing prayers in a form of thanksgiving. They're actually blasphemous. Questioning the goodness and wisdom of God. So he prays to himself. What else? He measures himself. He measures himself, doesn't he? 
that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Emphasis on personal merit. Of course, he does what most people do. He tends to measure himself against the worst, or at least as he evaluates it, the worst type of people. Right? You know, you go and start doing evangelism and asking people, you know, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Or you talk to them about what they're trusting in and so on. And sometimes the conversation will come round to some form of a discussion which, in which they try to justify themselves by saying, well, I'm not like, and they, they never name the best examples of humanity, ever. They never name the best. They never say, well, I'm not like, um, whoever it might be, right? I don't Whoever you think is a good example in human history, whatever, you know, whoever it might be, they never name the best. They never say, they never compare themselves with them because, well, if you start, if they started doing that, well, maybe they might not be so confident. But they always mention the worst. They always look at, like this man does the same thing, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, And he not only measures himself against the worst by his assessment, but he also measures himself by the deeds he accomplished. Verse 12, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. Now there is implied in this, by the way, of course, the Lord is not against these things. He's not against fasting. He stipulated, I've said this before, there's one fast required by the people of God in the Old Testament. It was on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, that's the only one stipulated. Now, you can fast other times, and we find men fasting, especially as you, you move through. You see it in David's life, and especially when you come to like Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel and so on. You find them fasting as a part of their life. And so it was recognized as a helpful thing, spiritual thing, something that can contribute to spiritual life. But now they've kind of formalized it, so they fast twice a week. And they tithe. Is tithing a bad thing? No. Abraham pays tithes onto uh, Melchizedek. Thank you. <laughs> Jacob promises in his vow as well he's going to pay tithes when God meets with him at Bethel. He'll do that. So you find it in the Old Testament. You find it in carrying on through. It's not a bad thing. But, but here's, here's, here's the lesson. Jesus puts it in this frame in which Here's a man who's taking this and saying, look, look at what I have done. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, this is the, these are the easy parts of obeying me. This is easy. You fast twice a week? You tithe? It's not not a bad thing. But when you look at your life and you measure it by this, he's not impressed. So, he measures himself. He thinks that he has accomplished much and of course he's deceived. That's, that's the thing. He is deceived. He says ex- extortioners and just adulterers or even as this publican. 
he, he was. He extorted glory from God. He was unjust in his judgments against the publican. And he adulterated the gospel of free grace. Those are things we know about him. Guilty. Guilty of the very sins that he says he was not guilty of. In fact, there's only one thing he says that's true. That he is not like this publican. That's the only thing he got right. He's not like the publican. In one sense. Now you can look at it and say, well, they're both sinners. But when you see how the outcome, how it, how it develops in verse 14, there's a great distinction between these two men, and he didn't even know it. So when he says, I'm not like this publican, in one sense, heaven would declare, you're dead right. You're not like him at all. So we have our things that we do. And when you have a man talking like this, when, you, when any man starts to begin to think in these ways, that he is thankful that he is not like other men, and this is really dangerous because there are groups out there, there are different views theologically out there, and there are all sorts of ways in which we can categorize men, and we think to ourselves, I'm not like them, and you're proud of it, or at least you're thankful for it. Am I, am I thankful that God saved me and put me in a free Presbyterian church? Yes, I'm thankful for it. That, that very thing, that very thing, I can twist in such a way that it's abominable to God. Where I look across and I'm, I'm thankful that I'm this, and I categorize myself by the denomination that I'm affiliated with. And God is, God is displeased. So I want you to feel the pressure of the words. I want you to feel the weight of the language. This is meant to cut. Because your heart and mine tends toward trusting in yourself. And even though you have a grasp of the gospel and you've committed your life to Christ, even still you have this tendency to fall into a way of thinking that is according to your nature and not according to grace. And you need to suppress it. And you need to mortify it. And you need to silence it. And you need to get a rein on it and say, this is, this is abominable to God. So we've seen the, public, the Pharisee's prayer. Look at the publican's prayer. Instead, he prays by himself. That would seem to be the sense of it. The publican standing afar off. It's like as far away as he can. He comes into the temple, but he stands afar off. I couldn't help but think of Peter. Back in Luke chapter 5. You may flip over there just to refresh your memory. Luke 5. When you have the, the great draft of fishes that are brought in. Remember the Lord came to him and said, Go and 
Peter says, we've toiled all the night and caught nothing. And We're told in verse 6, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And So he's toiled there all night. This is a fisherman who's labored all night. Nothing. And the Lord says, go. I said, they're not there. But at your word, I'll go. Verse 8. Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, Jesus, as the heart of the temple, Peter feels that he belongs afar off. I belong afar off. Depart from me. I have no right to be so close to the glory of God. Beloved, that's how we should feel. In ourselves, we have no right to be close to the glory of God. We should feel like we belong afar off. He prays by himself. Also, he understood himself. He understood himself. What's his last few words where he says, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. In fact, the language actually is the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He's like Paul. How did Paul describe himself? As the chiefest of sinners. I don't know a man who's more wicked and wretched and sinful and disobedient and rebellious as me. I am the sinner. That's how Paul saw himself. And the publicans are the same. I'm the sinner. Not just a sinner. There's a room here where we all can say, I'm a sinner. But here's the question. Can I come to a point where I say I am the sinner? This man understood himself. I'll elaborate on that in just a moment. But also, not only did he pray by himself and understood himself, he understood God. He would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A few things here in this language. First of all, penitence over his sin. Penitence over his sin would not lift up so much as his eyes onto heaven. There's a sense of shame. Shame that is wrestling with the awfulness of his sin. So he is penitent. He is penitent. He is repenting. It's a posture of repentance. He has come to a point where he agrees with God about the ugliness and seriousness of sin. It doesn't matter what his best friends say about him, where they come and say, hey, buddy, it's fine. You're, you're a great guy. You're not that bad. I know people way worse than you. No. He, he feels shame. His friends would talk to him in such a way where he said, look, there are worse people than you. Stop being so kind of down on yourself. No, here's a man who feels like he can't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. So he stands afar off and feels like he hasn't even the right to look to the very dwelling place of God. Never mind, stand in the dwelling place of God. Not only penitence over his sin, pain because of his sin. Smote upon his breast. 
where he feels it. It's, it's where the truth has penetrated so deeply that it actually manifests itself physiologically. Now, one of the baseline ways in which you experience this is through weeping. Right? You, you begin to see something about a truth, the truth of your sin. Let's keep it in context. The truth of your sin. You begin to see it in a certain way, and you begin to weep. That's a physiological response to theological reality. You weep. You find sometimes in the Word of God that men go further than that. They rent their garments. They're lamenting so deeply, so profoundly. They're not even really conscious of it. It's not like they're, it's not calculated. They're feeling it. The grief and the sorrow. And they're so broken. They don't even know. They're not even conscious. Not until after the fact. Maybe they're even aware of what it is that they have done. Another way that that is seen is beating the breast. It's like, what have I done? My sin. You feel it. You're not just, not just agreeing in the head. But you're in such agreement with God that you're very... The, the, there's a physical side to it. So he understood God. Penitence over sin, pain because of his sin. And also propitiation because of his sin. Propitiation. God be merciful to me. What do I mean by propitiation? Dr. Cairns in his dictionary defines it. The appeasement or turning away of God's wrath against sinners by means of an atoning sacrifice. The appeasement or turning away of God's wrath against sinners. The word that you have undergirding this is that word. Be propitious to me. Not merciful it's different here. Be propitious to me. May I know that your wrath is turned away. Appeased. Not through my works, but by the work of another. You know, there are a lot of snakes that come into the church. Presently, if you keep your ear to the ground in the broad evangelical circles, you will find every so often criticism of, let's just talk, let's say like a reformed view of the atonement. You start hearing people criticize a reformed view. of the, These are evangelicals now, or at least professed evangelicals. 
They criticize a Reformed view of the atonement largely because they don't like the idea that in the work of Jesus Christ there is the appeasement of a God of wrath, God who is angry against sin. And they will say things like, in their snaky, slithery way, well, Jesus didn't emphasize that. Some of them who know their Bible will say, this is the only time we find Jesus dealing with that subject. It's Paul that deals with that. As if the fact that the apostles dealt with it makes it any less significant. So you watch for them. And you run from them. Propitiation is real and significant. God is angry with sin. And so really as you look at these two men, and just before we come to final remarks and the two outcomes, as you look at these two men, one of them is either like Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, I don't know what. (laughs) And the other one believes in a gospel of free and sovereign grace. With one, in some sense, he is content with his own contributions to God. With the other, he has nothing to offer. Nothing. So you have two outcomes. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, keep in mind here, what the Lord Jesus is doing is not saying, one man found a better way than the other. No. One man found the only way. and The other, lost. Lost. He went home. They both had to go home. And one went to his house justified. Glorious. Justified. Seen as just before God. Seen as, to use the language often interchangeable in the Bible, righteous. Righteous. He's righteous. What? He's righteous. He went home righteous? How did he go home righteous? He's a betrayer and a traitor of his nation. And he knows himself. He knows himself to be a sinner. That's how he describes himself. Not just a sinner, I am the sinner. He says to God, I am the sinner. God says he went home righteous. How? How? What happened there? What am I missing? 
between verse 13 and verse 14. What has happened? This is the gospel. This is the most glorious news. A transaction in a moment of time in which God freely justifies the ungodly. Not by their merit. But because of Christ. And when this man prays, God be propitious to me. He is knowing he needs a substitute. He knows he needs the ram caught in the thicket in Genesis 22. He knows he needs that. Someone to step in the place. He knows he needs one to be the burnt offering. One to be the goat that's slain and blood sprinkled on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. He knows he needs that. Because he is looking with an eye of faith, though his eye, though his head be bowed low, with the eye of faith, he is looking in hope and in faith. And he is resting on the merit of another. And he goes home righteous. He goes home righteous. Now here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. You all will go home, God sparing you in your journeys. You all will go home this night. And you will either go home righteous or unrighteous. Where are you? And what is what is your plea? What is your hope? Have you turned on to Christ? Have you recognized the only substitute for sin, the only answer for sin, whereby the just shall live by faith. The righteousness that you need is obtained by faith. Abraham believed God. That's all he did. He believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. The gospel is good news because it's all about what the Son of God has done. And nothing, nothing about what, about what you have done or can do. So if your prayers are more like verse 11 and verse 12 than they are like verse 13, do some heart searching. Because there's a spirit of this man that should never leave the true child of God, in which he feels I have no right of myself to be anywhere near God, and I stand afar off. I have no right to lift up so much as my eyes unto heaven, but smite upon my breast and plead for mercy. Oh, that you don't, it's not that you're staying right there and you're stuck in that place, but there. There is something of that that continues with you all your life in which really deep down you never move away from saying, I am the sinner. I am the sinner. And so that's, that's how you get exalted. How do you get exalted? Verse 14. How? If you, you exalt yourself, basically you're saying, it's, it's like saying anything other than I am not the sinner that I know. You're exalting yourself. You are the, the sinner you know. You don't know the sins of anyone better than you know your own sins. 
And if you don't know that, you probably don't know God. Because you don't know yourself. So if you can come to a point where you can say and agree with God, I am the sinner, I know. As far as I'm aware, I'm the worst person I know. I don't know anyone more sinful than me. If you can come to that point in the gospel, with you humbling yourself in that way, you'll be exalted. You'll be saved, received, adopted. You'll belong to God. Let's bow together in prayer. I want you to think about it as we pray. Are you the Pharisee or are you the publican? Between you and God, make sure you understand what Jesus is saying here. And bring yourself, humble yourself, acknowledge yourself to be the sinner, that Christ may to you be your Savior because He specializes in lifting us out of the dunghill and setting us among princes. But if we won't put ourselves in the dunghill or acknowledge ourselves to be in the dunghill, we will stay there hopelessly lost. Lord, help us. Help us to understand. Deliver us, please, from any self-righteousness, from any dependence upon ourselves. And give us grace to know ourselves to be the sinner and to say with the apostle that I am the chiefest of sinners. But praise, oh, we praise thee that this man receiveth sinners Oh, oh, may some know that they are received tonight when for the first time they know themselves to be hopelessly lost. May they find in Christ one who is mighty to save. Keep then thy word in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. Bless our time of fellowship tonight and may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.